0: So we get to preach to you this morning from 1 John 3. I'm going to work through a number of verses in that whole passage which Pastor Belcher read to us today and focus on a few of those verses in particular. And the chapter opens with this. It opens with a familiar passage. We sometimes see that, sing this together in church. It says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. First, before we get to talking about what this means, I want to point out the apostles' habit in their writing of Scripture of bursting into praise, even as they're writing these letters to God's people. So both, this is particularly notable in the apostle Paul when he's writing, sometimes in the middle of a sentence he won't be able to help himself or keep himself from speaking out in praise of Christ and of God as Father. And we see the Apostle John doing a similar thing here. It's not just a doctrinal statement, right? God has declared us to be his children. But he's calling out, see, behold, some translations say, see, it's an exclamation, how great a love the Father has given to us. This reminds us that the truths of Scripture are not just for our minds. They're for our heart to grow in our love for God, and we ought to have times where we spontaneously, even as reading Scripture, there should be times where we exclaim God's praises. Praising lips are one of the marks, one of the truest marks of God's children. Psalm 33 says, Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Those who are right in heart with God, praise is what marks them. They open their mouths in praise to him. If you find this difficult, you find your lips closed when you know you should be giving praise and glory to God, I encourage you to practice this. It doesn't come naturally to all of us. I'd say over the past 10 or 15 years, I have been working on just being willing to say, praise the Lord as a habit. Pastor Belcher is actually good at this. Um, And this is what we ought to do. And we should train ourselves. It requires practice and training our stingy hearts to want to praise God. So practice it when you know that you should praise God. Teach yourself and discipline yourself to speak God's praises and say praise the Lord when it's appropriate. Now what is it that John can't contain himself about in this passage? What is he unable to keep back his praises for God? It's the fact that God would even call us his children. Consider what God has done in doing this, that we, you and I, should be called children of God. Why is this a surprise? Why is it worthy of an outburst of praise? Well, if you listen to a lot of preaching that passes as Christian today, it might not be a surprise to you that God would call you his son. Every day in every way you're told that you're wonderful and beautiful and there's no reason God wouldn't love you. Just the way you are. I mean, people may get down on you, but God just longs for a relationship with you. If you just accept that truth that God wants a personal relationship with you and receive His love, then you could be totally happy and content. What are you waiting for? Have you heard this message? But that's not how John approaches this issue. John is amazed that God would bestow His love on us. Why is that amazing? It's because we are completely unworthy of God's love. Far from deserving His sonship, we are vile. We are wicked. We are full of murder and envy and strife and jealousy and sexual impurity and gluttony and bitterness ungodly fears. And that is far from who God is, isn't it? God is righteous. All of his ways are pure. He cannot abide evil. In his perfect sight, nothing is clean. In the book of Job, it says that even the heavens in God's sight are impure. He is to be feared above all gods because he made the heavens and the earth He examines the hearts of men and calls all his creatures to account for their ways. He is holy. There's nothing about you that deserves his love. You have been corrupted and polluted with sin, both Adam's and your own, and all you deserve is God's rejection, his condemnation. His destruction of your body and soul because of your rebellion against him. I was thinking about this. What a wonderful testimony of God's saving and a, a minister of God, John Patton, and going to God's enemies and God redeeming his enemies, right? Now, it's easy for us to look at cannibals and go, yeah, there's an enemy of God, right? But let us remember that we are each by nature children of wrath That's what Ephesians says, at enmity with God. And I, I often wonder how much of our relative righteousness compared to the cannibals is simply due to the heritage that we've been passed down of a Christian heritage in our nation in general. We've been passed down that such things are wrong and wicked. And we've just come to accept that as true, that cannibalism is awful because of who our fathers were in the faith that Christ spread, has spread his kingdom across the earth and taught us that such things are not right. But who would we be if we didn't have that Christian heritage? What would we give ourselves to if we did not have that basic understanding built into our culture? We deserve God's wrath. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we You and I should be called children of God, sons of God. A name that properly only belongs to one person, to Jesus Christ. That God would send His true Son to be the propitiation for our sins and cleanse us of our guilt by the shedding of His perfect blood. That Christ would absorb the thorns and nails of God's unbearable wrath for our sake. And that God would then make us his own sons, bearers of his name, partakers of his fatherly care, and sharers in an imperishable inheritance that belongs to Christ. That he would cause us to share in all things that belong to him, fellow heirs with his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, and filled with his Holy Spirit who cries out within us that God is our Father. There is no love like this. And every other thing that goes by the name of love pales in comparison. See what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. This is something for us to wonder at, that God has done this for us. Now, having marveled at the unspeakable blessing of being called sons of God, the Apostle John goes on to talk about what it looks like for us to bear the resemblance of God our Father. And let me ask you a question. How do you know that my children are my children? <laughs> Almost. Don't forget about Vera. But yes, yes, that's the correct answer. Uh, yeah, you can tell, right? And you all bear some resemblance to your father. You can't help it. You are your father's child. Maybe your hair is the same color. Maybe your face shape. Maybe how you're built, your voice. Maybe even how you walk. Have you ever noticed people walking the same way in the same family? And even beyond physical characteristics to mannerisms and personality and interests and strengths and weaknesses. Have you ever seen someone who, even though you've never met them, you've got a pretty good guess of which family they're in? You're like, I don't know who that kid is, but I'm pretty sure it's a Solomon. Solomon. <laughs> You can recognize relationships between parents and children. And God made it that way. Regardless of however many corruptions there are of God's perfect design for fatherhood through sin and failure, there will, till the end of time, always be an inescapable resemblance of son to father. And those who are born of God bear a family resemblance to their father. It's not a resemblance of physical characteristics But just as our birth in him is spiritual, so our resemblance to him is spiritual. But just because it's spiritual doesn't mean it's invisible. Okay, that's a temptation we have to think spiritual. Spiritual is something you can't ever see, but that's not the case here. John tells us in uh, verse 10, you can jump there, Liam, verse 10. By this the children of God and of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. So, the children of God are obvious. This doesn't take some great spiritual vision or knowledge to peer into the mysteries of the universe. John says it's obvious. Those who do not practice righteousness are not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. The children of God bear spiritual resemblance to their Father, and that resemblance manifests itself in the practice of righteousness. Now, even more specifically, our resemblance to our Heavenly Father manifests itself in our love for the brethren, for those who also belong to Jesus Christ and bear His name. Let's look at verse 14 in this same chapter. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children... Let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. John reminds us here that Jesus died for us. He died for the purpose of making us his brothers. And then he reminds us that there is a natural practical implication that flows from this truth. If Jesus died for us, we ought to lay down our lives for one another. We get to demonstrate and multiply the love of Christ in our willingness to sacrifice for those around us whom Christ already died for. When it comes to laying down our lives, some of us may be tempted to think highly of ourselves. This may or may not be you, but I think it is true of at least a few of us. You know, we think, yeah, I'd lay down my life for so and so. You know, it sounds romantic and heroic. We've seen lots of movies where people lay down their lives for others, and it's always glamorous, right? And we may think, you know, if a man walked into church with a gun, I'd be the first one to take him down. Every time I watch Braveheart, I'm ready to lay down my life for someone, you know, or for something, for freedom, or whatever comes my way. But John actually surprises us here, I think. After saying we ought to lay down our lives for each other, he doesn't go on to give heroic and romantic examples of people literally dying for someone else. He doesn't talk about persecution here or execution and the ultimate self-sacrifice of martyrdom. No, he talks about someone in need of the world's goods. Think food, clothing, other basic everyday things. And when he does this, our hearts might be tempted to close up, because it's no longer glamorous. It's earthy and humble and disappointing. And to be honest, it's hard, because it's not talking about a hypothetical pie-in-the-sky potential reality of having to die for someone else. It's very real and practical and applicable to all of us. And we realize that John is actually highlighting some of the hardest work, and that's caring for others in the very simplest of ways. And of course, if we're not willing to do these small things for someone else, it's silly to tell ourselves that we'll somehow be willing to make the greatest sacrifice of actually laying down our life for someone if that opportunity were to arise. Think about it. So God calls husbands, we know from Ephesians 5, to lay down their lives for their wives. Now, how many husbands do you know who have actually taken a bullet for or jumped in front of a speeding car for their wife. I'm guessing slightly more than zero of all husbands are called to, in a, an instant, a moment, to die. So what is God doing when he says this? We ought to lay down our lives. Is he just giving us some kind of hypothetical? Theoretically, if a wife's life were to be in danger and there were some way the husband could sacrifice his own life for hers, then he should do so. Well, of course, that's true, but a husband is called to lay down his life for his wife every single day by putting the needs of his wife above his own. A husband and father is, willing, is to willingly and joyfully submit his own desires to the needs of his wife and children. He's not just supposed to make occasional token sacrifices in order to keep his wife happy and his conscience clean. No, it's about his entire attitude toward her and whether or not it's an attitude of care and provision and humility, or of pride and selfishness. On the flip side, a wife is to submit to her husband, as Ephesians 5 says, in everything. Everything, what does that mean? It means she's not just to display occasional signatory acts of submission, letting her husband make a decision every once in a while. Now it's about her entire attitude towards him and whether or not it's an attitude of submission and deference or of rebellion and self-exaltation. God does not want an outward show of our obedience. He wants our hearts. He wants the attitudes of our hearts to be toward one another rather than toward ourselves. And this is the work not just of husbands and wives, of course, It's the work of every Christian. We look in verse 11 of 1 John 3 here. This is the message which you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Love for others isn't just occasional nice things that we do for people. We want to think, well, yeah, I love that person. I did that nice thing for them that one time, remember? But is that love? It may have been an act of love, but love itself is an entire heart attitude toward another person. It's an orientation of yourself towards always advancing the good of other people. Love is wanting other people's needs to be met. Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul gives us another example where he reminds us of what Christ has done and what, how that should flow out in our lives towards other people. It says this, Philippians 2 Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, lowered himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here's a point I want to make from this. Jesus didn't just lay down his life in one terrible moment on that cross. Think about it. All 33 years of his life on this earth, from the beginning to the end, were a laying down of his life for others. His humbling of himself wasn't a moment in time. It was the offering up of his whole life, every minute of it, to the glory of his Father and the service of his neighbors. In that life as a bondservant, a slave to the needs of others, is what fittingly led up to his ultimate sacrifice on the cross. The Apostle Paul says he was obedient to the point of death. Not just when he died, but obedient up to the point of death. His willingness to die for others was not a surprise when the time came to be crucified. It was simply doing what he had been doing ever since he was born in a barn. And this is why John brings out the more mundane earthly reality of my brother who needs the world's goods right now, whether it be food or clothing or my time or my strength or my money. In a sense, John goes down to the lowest common denominator, what all of us experience, and this really does expose the state of our hearts, I think in a more keen way often than the thought of, what if I had to die for somebody? You might say to yourself, yes, I would lay down my life for someone, but the real question isn't, would you lay down your life? The question is, do you? Do you lay down your life for your brother? When you see your sister in need, Today, do you take care of her? Are you willing to give some of the simplest things for the sake of your brother? Or do you find yourself stingy with fleeting earthly goods? A few dollars to help someone out. A ride when someone needs it. A little bit of comfort for the sake of someone weaker who needs help. A moment of time to offer a word of encouragement or to listen and bear someone's burdens a portion of your day to pray for others? Is it inconvenient to you to lovingly warn someone of the danger of their sin? These are all things God has graciously shared with us. But if you are stingy with what God has graciously given to you, how does the love of God abide in you? That's John's question and the Holy Spirit's question to us. I want to spend some, some time driving this home on the home front because I think the rubber really meets the road in this matter of love in our households. Romans 12.10 says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Okay, and I'm going to take you through some of my thought process this past week. This and other places in Scripture assume a basic love which exists or at least should exist between brothers, right? But that's not always the case, as we know. And I have to confess, the fact that Scripture uses that phrase, brotherly love, was a bit of a stumbling block to me this week. A stumbling block in the sense that it made me wonder, does the Bible really know what it's talking about? But then I remembered that the very first encounter we have with brothers in the whole Bible is Cain and Abel. And that's actually what John ends up talking about here in this chapter that we've read. And so, no, I'm not crazy to think that brothers have difficulty loving one another, and the Bible does indeed know what it's talking about. Why is it such a challenge to love those closest to us? Well, familiarity really does breed contempt. You know that proverb? The surest test of our heart attitude often comes with those whom we see most often with those whom we're closest to. I don't want to speak too universally, but I think it's relatively easy for many of us to show kindness to the random person we only see every once in a while. It's much harder to show kindness every day to the same person who keeps doing the same things every single day in my very own home. That is a true test of patience and love, much more so in many ways than the showing of kindness to someone you don't know very well and who doesn't know you. Someone at school has a major crisis and is in need, and it's kind of exciting to jump in and help out. But today, your brother gets hurt. The same brother who faked it yesterday and who laughed when you fell down and got hurt the day before that, how are you going to treat that brother when he's hurt? With the love of Jesus or with contempt? This is obviously applicable to us as parents towards our own children or as husbands and wives towards one another as well or whoever it is you live with and spend the most time with. It's pretty easy to be excited about someone in a far-off distant place. This is another example. A far-off distant place winning an amazing award for accomplishing some great feat. And you can look at that and say, Oh, that's awesome that that person I don't even know won something. But what about when your brother gets awarded and does something impressive? Suddenly, there's jealousy, isn't there? Because you think, well, I could have, or I should have won that. Oh, God, be merciful to us. We need his help, don't we? Listen to how central love must be in our homes And with each example, think on the love of Christ showed when he made his enemies his brethren. Titus 2 says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children. This is what young Christian women need. Young women, love your husbands. Love your children. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. We're told that because bitterness is always seeking to establish its root in our hearts, even and especially towards those closest to us. Listen to this. The father... Loves the Son. These are the words of Jesus. The Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. Fathers delight in your sons wanting to see everything you're doing. Don't be bothered when they're at your heels. Where are you going? Ah, I'm just going out to the car to get something. Love your children. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. I like the ESV's translation of that, Romans 12.10. Outdo one another in showing honor. Let the competition be, can I show more honor to my brother than he shows to me? We can choose with God's help to take joy in meeting the needs of others. Delight in being like your Lord, Jesus. He is God's Son, and God has made us His sons through Him. And as His children, the children of God are made obvious because they look like Him. And the main way they look like Him is by their sacrificial love for one another. Because God, the Father, is liberal. He is not stingy. God is lavish in his gracious gifts. He gives his children wonderful blessings, and they, in turn, because of who they are in Christ, give freely to others. So, thinking about physical things, this means giving freely of what? What things? This is a real question. What things do we give freely to those in need? Yes. Food. That's right. Now, does that just mean working in the soup kitchen and feeding the homeless? Or does God call us to joyfully share our food with our brother and to delight in our sister getting the last cookie? I bring these up because it's easy to skip over the things that are in front of our face every day and to be consumed with selfishness, and to occasionally punctuate our selfishness with impressive acts of righteousness and service to somebody we don't even know. But God watches us in our homes, and we need to be full of love for one another. And it's foolish to to fool ourselves into thinking that we are somehow full of love when those whom God has put right around us every single day, we do not give preference to them and honor to them. What else? Food. That's a good example. What else do we freely share as God's children? (laughs) Is Is that an answer? The money. The money. That's right. Freely giving of the things that we have. Yes, you have one? What? Say it loud. Toys. Yeah, that's right. That's a good one. Do you freely share your things with others, with those who come over to your house, with your brother and sister? Does it delight you to see your little brother enjoying your toy? If we are being like Christ, it will delight us. We can choose through the Holy Spirit to delight in blessing others. Money, food, toys, our strength and our abilities, our time. Do we delight in giving of our time to someone else? Do we delight in being interrupted to help someone else? But it's not just physical things, it's spiritual things too. God has blessed us with joy, with wisdom, with faith, with knowledge. Do you share your joy with others? Do you share the wisdom that God has given you as an older man, as an older woman, freely with those who are younger? Do you share the faith that God has given to you? That you have a special measure of, do you impart that faith to others and strengthen them when they are having trouble believing? Has God given you knowledge and understanding that you can share with others? God has given us all of these things, and we are to share and bless others as God has blessed us. And we are to share the truth about who God is and what He has done for us. The kingdom of heaven is a pearl of great price. Which we don't have to be stingy with, because guess what? There's enough of it, enough of the treasure of the kingdom of heaven for us to share. Because God's storehouse of treasure is endless. Now, ask the question, but what about, you may be asking this question yourself, what about my lack of love? It is hard to hear these things and not be keenly aware of how woefully short we fall of the love of Christ who was obedient even to the point of death. First of all, don't be discouraged. Speaking of this church, it is such a joy to see you love one another. You really do take care of each other's needs and share so much of your time and your home and your joy and your comfort with one another. This is the work of the Holy Spirit among us that you are treating one another as true brothers and sisters without bitterness and resentment. And I praise God for this church. Another encouragement toward patience and faith comes earlier in this chapter. If you can go back to uh, verse 2, Liam. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. We are even now, there's a great encouragement here, we are even now sons of God through Christ. And nothing can change that. And yet, it has not appeared as yet what we will be. So there's a tension here, right? We truly bear the name of God's sons, that we belong to him. And yet John says, it's not appeared yet what we will be. God knows better than you do the ways that you fall short in your love for others. But here's what we need to focus on. The more we fix our hope on Christ, the more it will help us to grow in our love for our brother. A true Christian is someone who wants to be like Jesus in every way. And such a person can't help but be painfully aware of ways he is not yet like Christ. But Christians continue to fix their hope on Christ himself and not get bogged down with our own perception of how perfect or imperfect our righteousness is yet. We know that we are on the way to being just like Jesus. And though that work will not be complete until we actually stand before him and see him face to face, we get to make progress and take steps along the way, and we get to exhibit his glory and love in this life as we do. And the more we fix our hope on him now, the more joy we will find in being like him by loving those around us. Only those who fix their hope on Christ can begin to love as he loved. Only those who have been loved by Jesus can in turn love those around them. Only the Christian has access to Christ's abundant storehouse of love. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So if you are secure in God's love for you in Christ, if you know that you are his son, it will enable you to love those around you. And if you do not have assurance of that, get it. Go to God for that assurance of our sonship in him. As you rest in the approval of your Father in heaven and apply yourself to hating and fighting against sin, you will begin to live and grow in righteousness, and you will have great satisfaction in doing so. So take heart and don't be discouraged. We have a good Father who graciously calls us his sons, even right now, And he has promised that he will, in his good timing, make us worthy of that high calling.